One thing I've learned during the last year of this pandemic, Phil, is that I don't need to salt my sidewalk. You don't need to salt your sidewalk. Yeah, I was doing some spring cleaning and I realized I did not use any salt on my sidewalk all winter. And I'm pretty sure the reason why is I've been trapped inside during the pandemic. And whenever it snows, I go out and shovel right away because I want to get outside into some fresh air and do something else. So I think because I shoveled so regularly, it never got slippery and I didn't have to throw down salt. How bizarre. (laughs) Have you learned anything in the last year from COVID? I see you haven't cut your hair. (laughs) Actually, I got an appointment with Jose later this week, so that's, that's on the tickle list. But yeah, what have I learned from the pandemic? I guess... I've learned how to hit my nine iron straight. Oh, because you were outside a lot, golfing. I played a lot of golf because it was the one thing I was allowed to go out and do. As somebody who has always been, I thought, too cool for golf, now that I'm 40 years old, I guess I play a lot of golf. (laughs) Old man. You remember a year ago, we interviewed Dr. Patrick Remington, an expert on the spread of disease, about this thing that was just starting to happen called the novel coronavirus. And we asked him a bunch of questions about it that now seem pretty silly. I learned back then, Phil, that you can pet your neighbor dog and not get COVID-19. And I think we talked about things like, should you wipe down your groceries before you take them into your house? And should you not handle the fruit at the grocery store? All things that we sort of realize now you don't have to do. I will say, back to golf. I was playing this weekend, and that's something that I think was going to go on from the pandemic for forever, is that you can no longer pick up the flagpole and take it out of the hole. (laughs) Even though we know you're not going to spread germs with your hands, you still can't touch the flagpole at the golf course. Well, today on Center Stage, the Wisconsin State Journal's political podcast from the Sensible Center of Wisconsin Politics, we have invited Dr. Patrick Remington back to our show a year later. So much has happened with COVID-19 since then. We're going to ask the good doctor what lessons he's learned from COVID-19 and where we go from here. I'm Scott Milford. I'm the editorial page editor for the Wisconsin State Journal. And I'm Phil Hands. I'm the editorial cartoonist for the Wisconsin State Journal. And we are half of the Wisconsin State Journal editorial board. The more vaccinated half. We are, that's right. Pat, thanks for joining us again on Center Stage with Milfred and Hands. It's been a year since we talked to you. Wow, a lot has happened. We've learned a lot. I'm almost embarrassed to say the last time we interviewed you, which was in March of 2020, I was asking you whether I could pet the neighbor dog. Like, I was paranoid about that. And we've come a long way, haven't we, in terms of what we understand about COVID. And today we wanted to ask you, what are some of the lessons we've learned? And then where do we go from here? One lesson is we don't have to worry about petting the dog or touching a lot of things. I mean, that wound up not being as big of a deal, right? Yeah, it's really interesting in that we can talk about the lessons we've learned, but one of the overarching things we've learned is that science is an iterative process, that we don't know everything, and we develop hypotheses based on observations, and then you test them, you see whether research bears them out. You do epidemiologic investigations, outbreak investigations, 
and then you learn. And the scientific community is not only comfortable with that, but that's been a longstanding process of observation, generating new hypotheses and testing them, and then learning. It's interesting that some people have viewed this as a sign that uh, science or uh, the government doesn't know what they're doing. At one time, masks were not recommended, and now they are. People worried about touching objects and leaving grocery bags you know, in the garage for three days, milk to spoil and eggs to rot. <laughs> and now we don't worry as much about that. Well, that turns out to be the scientific process. So yeah, we, we've learned a lot, but, but we've really learned the importance of letting science happen and listening to experts who are involved in that process. So speaking of masks, I'm just going to jump right into it because I remember this from our discussion a year ago is we asked about wearing masks and you sort of suggested that if you weren't actively sick, you don't need to wear a mask out in public necessarily because a cloth mask that somebody sews isn't really going to keep the virus in or out and you might just touch your face more adjusting the mask doesn't fit well. That's what we thought then, but we don't think that anymore. And that's changed, correct? Yeah, that's changed. I think the early evidence was that perfection was uh, the intent. If you think about when masks are used in this country, they tend to be used in surgical settings, in hospitals. And what you really want in that setting is perfection. You want to make sure not one germ from the nurse or the surgeon in the operating room lands in an open wound in a patient. So we have high standards for those masks and anything less than perfect is not acceptable. So we have N95 masks, we have perfect fits. Men aren't allowed to have facial hair because of the concern that they won't be as effective. Firefighters, for example, have perfection as a standard because of the potential for breathing in toxins. But what we learned was that it doesn't have to be perfect. A cloth mask significantly reduces the risk that a person who's ill will actually put that virus into the air and transmit it to the next person. So we, again, let perfection be the enemy of the good. And the other thing we observed is that people who wear masks in research studies tended to be less likely to get infected in settings in hair salons and other public settings. I think the most important thing is that a person who is sick, the potential source of infection should definitely wear a mask. And for a while, we heard that even double masking, that a paper surgical mask and then a cloth mask on the outside is better than none, certainly, and better than one. But we also learned that individuals can protect themselves. And that's tough. I mean, a lot of times in science, we like to hold the information until we're absolutely sure about what, what is true. But we couldn't afford to do that in COVID-19 response. So we put out the best available evidence. And I think that's cost us. I think it's cost the scientific community some credibility to have to sort of backpedal and say, well, it turns out uh, we didn't know everything then. We continue to learn. And this is the best information we have today. What have we learned about our healthcare system, do you think, more broadly? Well, I like to think of it as a stress test. And I think most people would say that the, the patient, the healthcare system failed this stress test. It is a stress test for not just the healthcare system, but the public health system and society in general. Uh, how well can we respond to a pandemic? And uh, we learned that the healthcare system isn't set up for this. 
that we have independent systems that don't collaborate on things like purchasing and care delivery. We have holes in the system. Some people aren't covered. Some people have uh, insufficient or inadequate coverage. And basically, we depend on outside suppliers for uh, uh, supplies. So when that system was stressed, it was very difficult to respond. It was difficult to get ventilators for people who were really sick. It was challenging to get masks uh, supplied to providers. And then patients just uh, had a hard time knowing how to navigate that system. I think it's responded by really stepping up to the plate with vaccine administration. Healthcare systems have worked really hard to get a supply of the vaccines and to get people into the system. But some partners of of healthcare system have stepped up. Uh, Private pharmacies and chain pharmacies have really stepped in and have played an important role. In fact, when I hear about people getting vaccines, it's often driving to a pharmacy and getting one sometimes in a surrounding community. So I think the healthcare system is designed to provide sickness care to people, but it's not really designed to respond to a global pandemic in a coordinated, concerted effort. And how do we fix that? Well, it's a good question. I think it depends on partnerships. I think our public health system was stressed. And uh, some countries, when you step back and look at countries that have really responded well, those countries tend to have stronger federal systems tend to have the ability to implement a sort of a command and control response. The order at the federal government is absolute. And uh, by having a strong central government, the communities, the localities respond. We did design our government that way. We designed 50 independent states that are responsible for the public's health and for healthcare. So that turned out to be a system that is great for innovation and independence and local control. But that isn't really what you want when you have a single virus that is sweeping the country and could use a concerted single voice and a single resource administration system. And so that's the price we pay for the system that works reasonably well in non-pandemic times. And in complicating in Wisconsin, we're one state with 72 separate counties with 72 different orders on how to deal with the pandemic right now. Yeah, I'm actually teaching a lecture tomorrow in in an undergraduate course at the university. And the topic of the lecture is the U.S. public health system and uh, how it's organized. And Wisconsin is one of the many states that have a public health system that is local control. So some states, New Jersey, for example, administers their public health system centrally so that the state really is responsible for uh, public health, but not in Wisconsin. So, yes, we have 72 Uh, counties, uh, some even health agencies within those counties. Each of them has had to look at the data, has had to come up with public health orders. So in a way, a system that is responsive during normal times is really challenging to respond to a global pandemic. The politics have been frustrating, whether it's do we have a mask order or do we force schools to open, those sorts of things. How do you think, though, the people of Wisconsin have done on dealing with this virus and this pandemic? I think a year ago we talked about how Wisconsin had done pretty good 100 years ago, relatively speaking, because we tend to follow the rules and do what we're told as a community. How do you think we did this time around? I think that's been variable. Like anything, uh, it depends where you are and, and the type of culture in that community. And what we've found is that 
uh, communities that are rural uh, have more of a sort of a conservative uh, perspective, uh, limited role of government, have responded differently than uh, communities that have a view that it's an appropriate role for a health department to make an order. We've also seen communities of color have a longstanding mistrust of government and of uh, institutions that have not served them well. Obviously, right now it's a crisis in policing, but that's been around for a long time in public health. And there's been some reluctance there to respond. And I think it just gets down to each of us asking the question, what do we do in our own best interest, our own self-interest? And what do we do for others? And sometimes it's important to do something for the collective, for for the good of others. And uh, getting a vaccination is a good example of doing something, not just for yourself, it's clearly beneficial. Uh, The risks, uh, although extremely small, are far less than the risks of disease. Uh, We know we're over 6,000 people dying in this uh, state alone. So we know getting COVID is really bad. Uh, the vaccine is clearly a better choice for you individually. But we also know that if we all are in this together, we can beat the virus by not having enough susceptible people in the community. This is called herd immunity, mm-hmm. not having enough susceptible people to, so it transmits. So it just burns out. Somebody brings a virus into your community uh, through travel, um, it just won't last. And the best way to get there is through safe and effective vaccines. And that's a question of everybody doing it, not just for yourself, which is, I think, a good enough reason, but doing it for others so that the community can be protected. Yeah, we just had the news that 50% of American adults have had at least one shot. I was impressed by that. I thought that that seemed like a lot to me. I thought we're really getting somewhere. Should I be or what do you, what do you make of that? Well, you're, you must be a glass half full uh, person <laughs> because the glass is half full, but you look at it the other way and the glass is half empty. But I heard Tony Fauci just this morning talking about, yeah, we're at 50%, getting to 60%, he thinks we'll get there. And then getting above that is going to be a challenge because of people who have are hesitant about the safety of the vaccine, certainly the J&J uh, side effect, rare as it might be, is a concern. I've always said that everybody's hesitant to have a needle put in their arm. I can't imagine somebody who does that willingly without any hesitancy. But you have to think that the alternative has a a death rate that's over 1% in Wisconsin right now, one in 100. That's real. And uh, those numbers aren't made up or fabricated. I think pretty much everybody knows somebody who has died from COVID. We just were planning our high school reunion and just learned of a classmate who died of COVID-19. It's mm-hmm. shocking. He was otherwise in great health. We'd look forward to seeing him at the reunion, and we won't. And so uh, death and hospitalization and long-term disability is clearly uh, a risk for COVID. And, and so I think we need to figure out a way to address the hesitancy of a significant portion of the population, or else the virus will continue to circulate and we will all have to continue to be careful because vaccines are not perfect. And so if a virus comes in, it will continue to mutate, by the way. I mean, that's another reason to get to herd immunity as quickly as we can. The virus is mutating every week, uh, every couple of infections, the uh, virus mutates. And so it's just bound to be 
become more efficient, more effective at getting people sick and, and then uh, infecting people bad enough so that they have a risk of dying. Fauci at one point said the vaccines are in a race against the variants. It looks like Michigan might have lost that race, na- neighboring state over. Uh, they're just inundated with cases right now. Is Wisconsin going to stay ahead of these variants because we have a good rate of vaccination? We're towards the top of the of the nation. Phil, it's really hard to say. I, I looked at the data this morning on Michigan because if you look at a the New York Times map uh, at hotspots, Michigan lights up. I mean, it is it is far and away the worst place in the country today. But I heard the governor of Michigan talk about that they'd done a really good job earlier. So I, I looked to see whether their overall case rate uh, since the beginning of time, to, uh, which is a year ago, um, is uh, worse. And they're not. Um, states like New Jersey and New York have much higher total infection rates. So it may be that Michigan did a good job early on at protecting people, but those people are susceptible. In other words, in Wisconsin, we have about 10% of the population has been infected. Which is the same nationwide, I think. But we're about average nationwide. So if you kept that number down, but the people you protected are susceptible, it's just an outbreak waiting to happen. Uh, So I think Michigan, in a way, was caught uh, between a rock and a hard place and that uh, they were doing a pretty good job of keeping transmission down, but they have not yet gotten to high vaccination rates. So that's a perfect ingredient for uh, spread. And especially with a sort of, you know, pandemic um, fatigue where people are just saying, okay, it's time. It's springtime. I'm going to get out. I'm going to party. I'm going to, you know, go to a bar, go to a restaurant or, you know, go to my friend's and that, that combination of susceptible people along with letting your guard down, is, is go- we know what's going to happen. That is that is absolutely predictable. I've been surprised that the number of cases in Wisconsin, which I think is something like 800, I've been seeing 800, 900 a day. I'm surprised that hasn't been going down more. Well, again, we have uh, the glasses uh, still half empty. I'm, assuming we have about 10% of the population Actually, those are infected and reported. We may have uh, another five or maybe close to 10% of the population infected, but not reported, not diagnosed, asymptomatic or symptomatic and and never tested. Uh, And if you combine that with, let's say, 50% of the population now immune from vaccination, we're we're getting close to a number that will keep uh, uh, transmission from happening, but we're not there yet. This virus knows how to get from person to person. It, it, it transmits uh, pretty easily uh, in close proximity. Again, as we said, less likely to be transmitted from touching from surfaces, more likely to be spread in close proximity to people who are in, infected. And many of them can be infected and pre-symptomatic or even asymptomatic. Um, lots of cases in young people, it's the highest risk group. Um, so those Individuals are less likely to get real sick and die, but they're more likely to be transmitted because they're spending more time together. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we still have a large susceptible portion of the population. And as long as those individuals gather in close proximity, then we'll continue to see that number. I, I too, Scott, I have to say that I, you know, I saw that peak. I mean, if you step back and look over the past year, we're clearly the worst is behind us. Mm -hmm. 
I had hoped that tail would have continued down, um, but it is bumped back up again. And I, I think it comes with springtime and people just tired of of having to stay, you know, self quarantined and and not gather uh, together. Phil and I just got vaccinated last week. Second shots each. Second dose Pfizer, man. What's the gang sign for that? <laughs> I'm just wondering, what's your recommendation for people who've been vaccinated since more than half of us now are at least halfway there? How nervous do we need to be about these variants, for example? And how worried do we have to be about maybe even if we're somewhat immune spreading it to someone else? It's a great question. New York Times this morning had a great article about the difficulty in going from sort of a focus on staying well and staying safe and using masks whenever you go out, social distancing, basically self-quarantining for a year. And now you've had two doses. You should probably wait a couple of weeks after the second dose. I've been uh, fully vaccinated for a fair amount of time. And I have to say, it took me a while to gather with others who are fully vaccinated and actually feel that it was okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just felt strange There's a great story that was told in this article this morning. The story is that if if I came up with an idea that I could provide incredible pleasure to people, uh, it would be enjoyable. It would allow you to see new sites, to gather with people uh, that you haven't gathered with. You would say, well, give me that new invention. And I I said, well, there's a cost. A hundred people are going to die every day as a result if you want this. And most people would say, oh, no, uh, then forget it. I, I'm not going to take that. It turns out 100 people die every day from automobile crashes. And so that's we, we accept automobiles for all they do for us. And the, the price is 100 people dying every day. 30 to 40,000 people die a year. And that's just the price of doing business. So the risk of COVID in people who are fully vaccinated is extremely low. The risk of serious disease and death. There may be some risk of infection, but that infection is much less likely to be serious. And so this, we need to, in a way, accept the fact that there is no such thing as zero risk and the cost of doing business, whether it's dining with your friends, whether it's um, going back to work or going out to a restaurant, the cost of doing business is there's a small risk that you may get infected and an even smaller risk uh, that you may get really sick. But again, I'm talking about people who are fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Even if you had illness, you take every advantage of, of minimizing that risk. But we need to get back to realizing that there's no such thing as zero risk. There's no such thing as perfectly 100% safe. We're going to go back to work. There are going to be some people getting sick, just like influenza, just like automobile crashes. Um, it's the price we pay for you know, going back uh, to work and, and gathering it again in person. But too many people have done this for so long, and we've listened to credible experts about how serious this is, and we don't want to die from COVID-19, and yet that risk is now extremely small. And so I, I recommend that you do what you follow the recommendations that if you are fully vaccinated, it's been a couple of weeks that you can gather again with other people who are fully vaccinated uh, and get back to work, get back to social gathering and, and uh, acknowledge that it's never going to be zero, but, but it's certainly an acceptable risk that we need to take 
uh, to get back to work. We just got vaccinated on Wednesday last week, Scott, right? You and me. So a week from this Wednesday, we should get together for a beer at a bar somewhere. <laughs> I'd recommend it. All right. Doctor's orders. So we could actually start doing podcasts in the same room again, rather than being on Zoom? He's not agreeing to that. Notice that, Scott. He didn't respond to that. <laughs> well, I was asking you, doctor. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So I uh, uh, direct a preventive medicine residency program. Um, our residents see patients, so they were vaccinated early. Uh, I, I'm teaching and over 65 years old, so I, I was vaccinated early. And uh, all of a sudden, the first Wednesday in April, we said, you know, we can meet together in person. And I have to say that that meeting, uh, first of all, seeing a couple of residents that have been with our program almost a year and realizing I had barely seen them in person yeah. uh, in a year. And uh, it did seem strange to be sitting in the same room in close proximity. But again, we are fully vaccinated. This is a, a risk that is extremely small. We still engage in safe practices outside of work. We don't go out uh, you know, to bars and restaurants with strangers. We use precautions outside of work. But if you're in a setting with people who are fully vaccinated or visiting family that are fully vaccinated, uh, then you can rest assured that you've done everything you can. The risk is extremely small and it's time to get back to visiting family and, and uh, socializing and getting back to work. My kids are actually getting back to school for the first time this week. Thursday and Friday in Madison. I never would have imagined when we interviewed you a year ago that my kids weren't going to be in school for a year. What is your take on teenagers, most of whom aren't vaccinated now, returning to school? People like Phil and I are who have kids were like, oh, thank God our kids are getting back to school. But that's for different reasons. As a doctor, how safe is it and are you comfortable with schools reopening? Yeah, I'm comfortable with schools reopening. First of all, the research has shown that kids, particularly kids in grade school, do a really good job of, of complying with rules. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, kids. We have a grade school right next to where we live, and uh, kids are outside. They're, they're being kids, but they're all masked. Teachers are masked. Uh, they, they, they gather in separate pods, stay within their class. So, it's turned out that, that this has been a relatively safe setting. Not a lot of community transmission has come from schools. Um, now, the university setting, as kids get older, uh, if you look at the data I did, did again just this morning, you could see the peak that happened in our state in uh, young adults in September. When young adults came back to campus, uh, they partied. There was a, a, an immediate outbreak a huge number of infections on campuses, but um, campuses were able to respond through uh, routine testing, through uh, um, quarantine, through isolation, and those outbreaks were extinguished and came back to a very low level. Again, predictably, vacations, going home, uh, Thanksgiving, there was a bump, winter break. Uh, we probably are seeing a bit of a break from even though there wasn't spring break on campuses, uh, people took time away and they traveled. And uh, so that, that's all predictable. But, but to get back to your question, uh, I, I think getting back to school is really important for society. And there's some risk to it. Uh, but I think if we do it intelligently and uh, use common sense practices, uh, that that risk will be very small. Again, 
Um, kids don't seem to get real sick, especially younger kids. They may bring an infection home, but if parents are fully vaccinated, the risk of the parent getting infected is very low. And if infected, uh, if you look at the vaccine trials, the effectiveness in preventing serious illness uh, is virtually 100%. In fact, I think in the teenage trial, in the intervention arm, there were no cases, 100% vaccine efficacy. They're not promising that. But that vaccine in, in older teenagers is 100% effective. Uh, Tony Fauci said this morning that despite the J&J potential complication, the, this post-marketing surveillance has been also looking at Moderna and Pfizer, and nothing has come up. Millions, tens of millions of doses of uh, Pfizer and Moderna. It's phenomenal how safe and effective that vaccine is. And again, that's not just from one year. People have to know that the research, the fundamental research that was done on these vaccines has been, have been decades in the making. We just went into high-speed production um, uh, to deliver the vaccine. So, so I, I think the key is, is the kids need to get back to school. Parents need kids to get back to school. I mean, society needs to get back to normal. The best way to protect it is to protect the community by adults getting vaccinated, and then kids will not be a source of infection because their family will be uh, protected. Do you think we waited too long to get kids back to school? I mean, I know Europe had kids in schools kind of from the get-go of this year. I think it's a hard question, Phil. I mean, that question, unfortunately, can only be answered if you did it wrong. So if they go back too early, then you could say, well, we made a mistake. But I don't know if we'd gone back earlier, if we would have had more community transmission I think institutions have a challenge because they're making decisions not for themselves as an individual, they're making decisions for an entire community. And I think institutions tend to be a bit conservative, understandably, that you don't want to make a mistake and have a kid die uh, because you wanted to get back to school quickly. We know that can happen, um, but you don't want to be the one making that decision. So yes, I think in general, people who decide on behalf of others institutions and you know, policymakers tend to be risk averse and don't want to make a decision that's going to end up being the wrong decision. You know, looking back, hindsight is perfect. Yeah, probably could have gone back earlier in, in some settings, but it's not really fair to measure the quality of your decision making by looking back. Are you confident we're through the worst of this, given the variants? Well, I knew a long time ago that this virus was mutating. Early evidence was that it was not affecting the virus's behavior, that it was simply changes in the genetic code. Uh, but then, of course, the uh, British variant, we noticed that it changed its ability to infect others. And that makes sense. Those viruses are going to outcompete the viruses that aren't that effective. So uh, we, we thought this might be coming. The good news is that the immune sort of sensitivity of the virus, the, the thing that the vaccine sees is pretty much the same. So I think that if we were to just run wild, we would see a tremendous amount of continued mutations and variants that would be potentially more contagious. Uh, but I think we're getting to the point where we have in, in this country, certainly in our state, um, enough people immune to see less transmission and less opportunity for for variants. The concern, obviously, is we're a global society now. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, airplanes will be soon coming from every point on this planet. 
and, uh, and places that are not doing so well could be the source of continued transmission, continued uh, variants. And so this is one where uh, our, it's in our best interest as a nation to help the world uh, address the pandemic. Because if we don't, it'll be at our own peril. There will be variants that will be much worse, much more contagious, much more deadly that will be coming from other nations. And it it will begin as their problem, but very soon will become our problem. A hundred years ago was the last time we had it this bad, I believe. Mm-hmm. Do we get another hundred years now from this one before we have to deal with it again? Or is something going on here where this could well be more regular concern? Uh, there are a lot of people working at CDC and WHO and internationally to try and address the potential source of some of these global um, infectious diseases. And that comes from viruses that jump from animals. And we know that the closer people get to wild animals for, for trade, for game um, in, in, in markets, the more risky it will be to have another variant uh, that can infect humans. And, and again, these viruses you know, begin in animals, but but they pretty quickly learn how to mutate to infect humans. And so I, I think we need to get to the source of, uh, of these outbreaks. And, and, uh, and that's happening, but you know, economically and in some of these countries, that, that is the, you know, that's the economy. And so that's gonna be very difficult. I hope that we have a better system to respond um, to uh, surveillance and, and to find uh, any future um, viruses earlier and, and better respond a, a, as a nation. So I, I, and I'm concerned if you, you know, this virus, um, the other coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, have somewhere between 20 and 40% of people infected die. And this fortunately is a serious virus for older people. Um, more than half of the deaths in Wisconsin were elderly folks living in long-term care facilities. So it, it's been devastating for that community. Um, but the next variant could have a mortality rate, could combine what MERS and SARS has, uh, and the infectivity and the pre-symptomatic disease uh, contagiousness of COVID-19 and, and really, really be horrible. So this, uh, I, I'm not predicting that it will come back uh, soon, but it, there's definitely an ongoing risk of another global pandemic and, uh, and the risk that this virus doesn't just affect older people, but it could affect everybody and it could be much more deadly. Are you going to shake people's hands ever again? I don't see any benefit in it. Well, I haven't shaken anybody's hand uh, for a year. And it's actually, if you think about it, we put our hand up to our face and cough in it, and then we reach out to shake somebody's hand. So I'm not, I'm not so worried about COVID-19, uh, but, but it's just, a, I think, a, a, a habit that is, uh, whose time has come. Are there other lessons, doctor, that we should consider from the last year as you've thought about this? Yeah, I've learned a lot about where people get information. I knew there was a lot of misinformation on the internet, but I didn't know how many people really don't follow credible news sources. And uh, uh, so I think the lesson I've learned 
and I, and I teach this, is to be a lifelong learner, you really have to pick the right sources, pick credible sources, you know, not left or right, but high credible sources. Look at CDC and WHO, try and get back to the source of information. And uh, we know from the, the Netflix film, uh, Social Dilemma, if you are one to you know, take the bait and click on a conspiracy story, you will get more of those. And all of a sudden that becomes your reality. So I, I think the one major lesson is it's really hard to get information out in a clear and credible way because so many people um, are Googling and, and and your Google search, if you think your Google search is the same as the next person's, um, you're wrong. Uh, your, the, meat, the information you're presented is tailored to what you want to see. And, and that then, you know, it's machine learning. They, they learn uh, how to get you to click more. And, uh, and unfortunately, that can lead you down a rabbit hole of tremendous uh, misinformation. That sounds like a ringing endorsement for so getting a subscription to madison.com and subscribing to your local newspaper. I agree. You know, the other thing I did, Phil, is uh, I'll, I'll admit, I will confess sort of uh, in public uh, that I used to read a lot of newspapers and I used to figure out how to get them for free. And uh, I don't do that anymore. Uh, I, I read uh, on a newspaper, they put a little thing that said, a free and open society requires a free and open press. And we can only do it through your subscriptions. So I've long time subscribed to madison.com, but all the state journals, uh, nationally and even international uh, news sources, that's incredibly important. And, and uh, you know, we can't expect to get something for nothing. So I, I recommend everybody subscribe to these credible news sources and and don't use Facebook, particularly things that seem to be uh, really popular as your source of news. When do we finally get back to the way it used to be? Before our interview last year, before COVID-19 hit America, when do you think we're, we're back to that point where it's just not a concern? I don't know, Scott. I, I think my wife and I laugh because when we're watching a movie or something, we see a large gathering of people. We look at each other and we say, COVID. <laughs> and then we realize, of course, the movie was made, you know, back in a time when people could gather in large groups. I think that may not change for some people. I, I think that may be something that is a new normal because COVID is one respiratory diseases, mm -hmm. but there are many other respiratory diseases. Uh, I've basically gone a year without, you know, cold or influenza. Yeah, me too. And Scott's always sick. Not this year. My hope is that the silver lining has been that we've discovered some benefits of new technology. I think workplaces can be a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. Rates of pollution are down for people, you know, driving long distances. Um, so some of my professional meetings have been done very efficiently without having to hop in an airplane, go to Atlanta for a two-hour meeting. We figured out how to do things, I think, more efficiently and certainly without as much risk of travel and, and environmental problems from uh, travel. So I, I think my hope is the things that have been good about using technology to connect, I think, I, I hope will continue. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but time will tell uh, when we get back to normal. But I, I think school and work certainly, and recreation, to me, those are pretty important parts of society. And I think the momentum is going to shift back to hopefully 
um, just having this be a, be a memory. I'm sure the same thing happened in you know, 1917, 18. Um, I bet you people thought that life would never return to normal, seeing young people die um, literally in the streets. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that life returned to normal. And for many people, they, they'd never heard of the Spanish flu pandemic. So, so uh, I hope we don't forget about it. I hope we get, get over it. I'll say, Scott, I'm two doses into my vaccine. My wife's got her first dose. The kids are in soccer and baseball. My daughter has piano lessons. My calendar looks like it's normal again. And I think outdoor activities, the other thing we learned is uh, the virus doesn't transmit very well outdoors. Uh, sure, mm -hmm. it, it could theoretically, but again, we have to get back to the point of nothing is 100% safe. Uh, but I think typically respiratory viruses do not circulate as much in summer. If you look at most respiratory viruses, mm -hmm. influenza and, and uh, chickenpox and other respiratory viruses, they uh, go down in the summer, probably because of being outdoors and, and, and the weather versus gathering indoors, you know, with poor ventilation. And so I think we're at a time when high rates of vaccination, uh, uh, getting down to hopefully few people who are still susceptible and spending more time outdoors. I mean, I, I invented a, not invented, but I, I manufactured a uh, fire pod so we could sit outside in freezing temperatures around mm -hmm. a campfire. Um, I know a lot of people spend a lot of time outdoors um, to stay safe and yet gather with people. Uh, that's going to be a lot better once the weather's, you know, 60, 70, 80 degrees, uh, and you can certainly gather safely outdoors. I, I think, and certainly outdoor sports um, are, are going to be some of the safest things that, that and important for kids uh, to get back involved. Well, you're sounding like a half full guy now, glass half full. And my job <laughs> is to talk about the half empty, but my personal life is to work yeah. on that full. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Hopefully next year we're not still interviewing you about COVID. I would hope not. Well, we could interview again next year just to see what's going on in the world of epidemiology. It's great to uh, get back to normal. And uh, I think the more we do that, the, the less we'll think about the COVID risk. Follow Dr. Patrick Remington on Twitter, at P.L. Remington. Follow Phil at Phil Hands and moi at Scott Milford. Our theme music is by Tube Tester.